to that stupid bastard it took myself four thirty years ago. Hard to believe I was ever as bad as that. <laughs> Thank God that's all done with anyway. A Stain Upon the Silence In that extract from Samuel Beckett's play, Crap's Last Tape, an old man is listening to his memories, tapes he's made over a lifetime, and we hear him making what he knows will be his last tape, the one that will sum them all up, his stain upon the silence, as Beckett's work was for him. Not many Dubliners try to use silence as a way of communicating. Beckett did. And although he wasn't the only Irish writer who lived abroad, he lived in Paris for most of his life, he was the only one who wrote his best-known works in a language that wasn't his own. I spoke to Catherine Worth, Emeritus Professor of Drama at the University of London, and asked her why. I think the reasons for his writing in French at first, and of course he wrote Godot and uh, Endgame as Fin de Party originally in French, though he's translated them himself into English, so we can think of them as original works in English also. I think the reasons for that are very difficult, complex. One can't put it down in a word. But I've always felt that partly it was to do with being Anglo-Irish, in fact. That an Irish writer using English as his language is in a rather curious situation, as James Joyce obviously brought out uh, all the time. And I think there's a sense in Beckett's early fiction of a certain strain showing as a result of, of that Anglo-Irish position. In French, it seems that that was definitely uh, another language, one to which he had no um, commitment bound up with nationality, with cultural background ties of childhood, the past, and so on. It's sort of free language. When people move away from their uh, mother tongue, um, they are actually sometimes doing so in order to get away from the influence of their mother. Uh, langu language is so tied up with one's um, relationship to the mother because she's the first giver of language. You know, she's the one from whom one picks up a whole inherited way of perceiving and relating, that uh, if one has a problem with experiencing the mother as suffocating, um, the only thing to do is to get away from the culture. And of course Beckett did that, he got away from his culture, he got away from his language. That last speaker was Jasper Garneman, director of the Young Institute of Ireland. And whether or not Beckett was trying to get away from his mother, it's true that they do turn up often in his work. So do tramps, cripples, wanderers living on the edge of society. One of these is Malloy, and here he describes a visit to his own mother. She knew it was me by my smell. Her shrunken, hairy old face lit up. She was happy to smell me. 
She'd jabbered away with a rattle of dentures and most of the time didn't realise what she was saying. Anyone but myself would have been lost in this clattering gabble, which can only have stopped during her brief instance of unconsciousness. In any case, I didn't come to listen to her. I got into communication with her by knocking on her skull. One knock meant yes, two no, three I don't know, four money, five goodbye. I was hard put to ram this code into a ruined and frantic understanding, but I did it in the end. That she should confuse yes, no, I don't know and goodbye was all the same to me. I confused them myself. But that she should associate the four knocks with anything but money was something to be avoided at all costs. During the period of training, therefore, at the same time as I administered the four knocks on her skull, I stuck a banknote under her nose, or in her mouth. Often things in Beckett's work seem to happen, or not happen, for no particular reason. And in fact, he very nearly came to a premature end himself for no particular reason, when he was attacked in the street and seriously injured. One night he was stopped by a shady character who was looking for money, and then stabbed him. Beckett ended up in hospital with a perforated lung, and when he met his attacker in court later and asked him why he'd done it, the fellow said he didn't know. The poet Brian Coffey was in Paris at the time and read about it in the newspaper. Sitting in the cafe, when I uh, opened the, uh, the newspaper, and there was l'écrivain anglais Samuel Peckett, P. Peckett, uh, it wasn't Peckett, it was some other word. And that was, that was the headline. And I wondered about Sam straight away, you see. And it was just a short story that he'd been stabbed um, in the street as he left the cinema. So I thought I'd ring up Joyce and find out, explaining who I was. And uh, he, as I say, became very, very medical, talked prognosis and that kind of thing. And uh, he thought uh, also that Mrs. Beckett should be informed. So I wrote to her at once, uh, tell her that Sam was all right, but that um, she'd probably want to see him. And uh, she, she did come very quickly after that time. And then I went to see Sam, and uh, who was there at the bedside? But Joyce too, and I was introduced uh, to, uh, to Joyce by this supine figure <laughs> who was in, a, in, a, in a, an open ward with a whole lot of old men around him, you see. And I think he was rather happy there, but anyway, uh, almost immediately Mama came and he was moved to a private room. But the next time I came there, I saw uh, him again with Joyce, but uh, he was in this private room. And he was very annoyed that he was left out of real life. <laughs> real life intruded again a couple of years later in the shape of World War II. But even then, Beckett decided to stay in France. He preferred France at war, he said, to Ireland at peace. He stayed and uh, he made one attempt to leave France at that time. He went down to Bordeaux. But he returned to Paris where Suzanne, his lady, his lady he married, was instead. And uh, he went back to the, to the flat he'd been living in, and they stayed there until they suddenly heard one day 
that the Gestapo were waiting for them in the flat. And so they didn't go back. They, they left Paris at once and they went south into Vichy, France. And they stayed there for the rest of the war, trying to live and for the most part uh, trying, to, trying to starve. And I noticed when he came back from uh, France after the war, I had gone to Dublin, my father had just died, and I met Sam by accident in the, in the Gresham, and I never imagined a man could become so thin. He shrunk in weight down to below eight stone. He had a bad time in the war. He never spoke about it, and he never wrote about it, at least not directly. But he'd worked for the resistance, and he was honoured with the French government after the war. And it's quite likely that some of these experiences found their way into his writings in one form or another. And it was in the period following the war that he wrote the work that made him famous, the one that he's probably best known for, Waiting for Godot. This play without a story, where nothing happens twice, as someone once said, baffled theatre goers who wanted to know, among other things, who is Godot and what does the play mean? At least one audience had no problem understanding it, that was 1,400 inmates at the San Quentin Penitentiary in the U.S. who saw the play in 1957. Theatre director Walter Asmus worked with Beckett over 16 years until Beckett's death in 1989, and he describes the prisoner's response, which has passed into Beckett folklore. There was a company, I think, from, from San Francisco uh, going to San Quentin to the prison just as a, as a sort of social work, and, and they had put on Waiting for Godot because Waiting for Godot was one of the few plays which was allowed in this prison because there were only male uh, inwards and uh, well, inmates, inmates, and uh, they wouldn't allow women in, you see, of course. So they put on Waiting for Godot, and apparently they, this is reported. Uh, uh, it made a very, very great impression on the prisoners because they saw their own situation of waiting and so on mirrored in the play. and. Uh, but I think actually that any audience has had such experiences, not quite such a grim kind in their lives, because if you want to extend it into a more general question, we, d we don't really know what we're doing on the planet, although some people think they do, but perhaps more of us are doubtful. It's uncertain. And that's surely a little niggling worm at the back of consciousness for most people who think at all. So that Beckett is, has put his finger on that. And he does this through the bleak landscapes he paints in his plays and in his prose and poetry too, where lonely people wander with no real purpose, struggling to make sense of a world that seems to have none. It's a need of the artist to, to put order to, to chaos, I think. It has a lot to do with that, you know, to, to know that you are uh, living in a world of chaos, basically, or there's a chaos in yourself, there is a, there's a volcano, of, there's this fight between the body and the mind all the time, and so on, you know, and the, 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 when Godot very clearly, as you're going to vary the split of body and mind, uh, as you're going the physics and the body and, and Vladimir the mind and they get muddled up but to, to yes to, to make this fight clear and to get as much order in it as possible I think the, the real tricky thing is that uh, it goes through a way of order and 
I wouldn't dare to, to say whether it's deliberately or whether it is, uh, yeah, it's a process of shaping it into another chaos, probably. Malloy, the tramp who visited his mother, feels the need to put some kind of order on his life. He finds himself by the seashore and because he's hungry, he begins to suck a pebble. Then he decides to lay in a store of them, sucking stones, he calls them, in his pockets. But he wants to be sure that they won't get sucked in any old order. He wants a system. I take a stone from the right pocket of my great coat, suck it, stop sucking it, put it in the left pocket of my great coat, the one empty. I take a second stone from the right pocket of my great coat, suck it, put it in the left pocket of my great coat, and so on, until the right pocket of my great coat is empty, and the six stones I have just sucked, one after the other, are all in the left pocket of my great coat. Pausing then, and concentrating, so as not to make a buzz of it. I transfer to the right pocket of my great coat in which there are no stones left. The five stones in the right pocket of my trousers, which are replaced by the five stones in the left pocket of my trousers, which are replaced by the six stones in the left pocket of my great coat. At this stage, then, the left pocket of my great coat is again empty, but the right pocket of my great coat is again supplied, and in the right way. That is to say, with other stones than those I have just sucked. These other stones I then begin to suck one after the other and to transfer as I go along to the left pocket of my great coat, being absolutely certain. As far as one can be in an affair of this kind, that I am not sucking the same stones as a moment before but others. And when the right pocket of my great coat is again empty, and the five I have just sucked are all without exception in the left pocket of my great coat, then I proceed to the same redistribution as a moment before, or similar redistribution. That is to say, I transfer to the right pocket of my great coat, now again available, the five stones in the right pocket of my trousers, which are replaced by the six stones in the left pocket of my trousers, which are replaced by the five stones in the left pocket of my great coat. And there I am, ready to begin again. Do I have to go on? So the whole state of alienation and neurosis he um, paints is something that is at the root of every modern consciousness. It's just that I think people try and cover it up, that people get away from suffering or from getting in touch with the true alienation and the neurotic conflict by covering it up with hysterical extroverted activities, which might be consumerism or facile relationships or the kind of meaningless incessant talk that you get in Waiting for Godel. And I think Beckett's concern was really to show people just what the human condition was, regardless of the buffers we, we built around um, ourselves. Then I thought it reminded me so much of these legends where, uh, and fairy stories, where the king in a country is sick and waters dry up, water doesn't flow, the land uh, becomes barren, um, animals become infertile, and there's just general deadness and waste, and Beckett's landscapes are very much like that. And generally in these fairy stories, the king has to perform some kind of redemptive act or somebody has to do it for the king and when that redemptive act is performed the water begins to flow you know the the trees start bearing fruit and the animals become fertile and it's really a symbol of healing and that kind of healing doesn't seem to happen in 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 any of beckett's plays that healing symbol doesn't uh, occur and I think Beckett was very aware of not being fobbed off with false illusions of hope and false illusions of salvation. Um, and I don't think he ever actually, his plays ever actually got to the point where there was 
some kind of catharsis, you know. Um, and that, of course, makes them really, really despairing. I'm sure that's what gives them that power, actually. They said to me, that's love. Yes, yes, not a doubt. Now you see how easy it is. They said to me, that's friendship. Yes, yes, no question, you found it. They said to me, here's the place. Stop, raise your head and look at all that beauty. I think he deals with despair. He shows it on his stage. And often his characters come very close to saying, let's give up. I mean, for example, in Endgame, Clove is, is very bitter and grim. Yet, there, you see, there is always this, this sense of humor which changes the mood and makes them go on. Let's go. We can't go. Why not? We're waiting for Godot. They go on. Uh, and he is also imaginatively involved in finding answers through his characters who can't find answers. If you see what I mean, there is the search. It's always a search. And there are moments of um, near despair. And then there is the coming out of it again. Winnie, for example, in Happy Days, combs her hair and puts on her lipstick, even though she's buried up to her waist and then to her neck in the earth. She quotes poetry and she even finds the heart to sing. One could always argue against people who see the work as despairing, because it is not despairing to be creative in a dire situation, just the opposite. And um, of course, some people have criticized Winnie for being too cheerful in her gloomy posture. They, people divide themselves out, I've always found, um, into optimists or pessimists, remarkably over Beckett's plays. And um, 
well, he has been considered a rather fatuous optimist by some. Um, I'm not of that number. I think it's one of the most heroic moments in drama at any period when this woman now, with only a head showing above the earth, and after all, we all know what that means, really. She's sinking down, as people must. She's getting nearer to death. She's fading, and she suddenly has the power uh, at that really rather bleak and frightening, although thrilling moment, to sing. For me, his plays uh, are about to show the way how you avoid the, the dark and the hopelessness and the void creeping in. Uh, they're all fighting to keep it out, you know, the hopelessness and the void. And, and waiting for Godot, quite obviously, I mean, they're going on hoping, hoping, hoping. Even if there's only very little hope left, something arises and they can go on and they will go on. Perhaps it's a dream, all a dream, that would surprise me. I'll wake in the silence and never sleep again. It would be I, a dream, dream again, dream of a silence, a dream silence, full of murmurs. I don't know, that's all words, never wake, all words, there's nothing else. You must go on, that's all I know, they're going to stop, I know that well, I can feel it, they're going to abandon me. It will be the silence for a moment, a good few moments, or it will be mine, the lasting one that didn't last, that still lasts, it will be I. You must go on, I can't go on, you must go on, I'll go on. You must say words, as long as there are any, until they find me, until they say me, strange pain, strange sin, you must go on, perhaps it's done already, perhaps they have set me already, perhaps they have carried me to the threshold of my story, before the door that opens on my story, that would surprise me, if it opens, it will be I, it will be the silence, where I am, I don't know, I'll never know, in the silence you don't know, you must go on, I can't go on, I'll go on. What one thing one really must stress is what we can learn from Beckett, you know, in, in terms of, uh, yes, of conscientiousness uh, about uh, the things you deal with, about dealing with human people, about uh, dealing with, with uh, the material you are given um, as an artist and, and so on. Um, and on top of that, uh, the compassion which he felt with his own creatures, which he had invented, which he had created. And uh, that was an experience, the experience of my life, of course, you know, to see himself uh, having the same compassion uh, in everyday life with people with things which he heard, you know, when he heard an anecdote, he would pick out the deep human aspect of it. That would interest him, and not any uh, political stuff. Sometimes there were private moments where he really was absolutely excited about. Uh, there was a production of, of uh, Godot in, in San Quentin a couple of years ago, done by a, a Swedish actor, and. Uh, 
and I think the, the, this actor told him that the in inmates they collected money so that one the mother of one actor could come to see the performance you see and he would tell these stories you know these human stories where just pick out them you know and imagine and they all collected money so that the mother could come to see her son who was a who was a, a death warrior uh, could see him you know perform as vladimir or something like that so there are always these little things that really concerned him and that's i think was a great experience that was true all the way through uh, all the 15 years when I knew him. And it was this deep human feeling which Beckett put into his writing and on his stage, sometimes going beyond the words, finding other ways of getting the feeling across. And images, I think, in, in, um, yes, in, in gestures, in, in repetitions, in musical structures, and in, there's always some secret behind it which uh, comes across, which has to come across, I think. You can't explain the plays, for example. If you start to explain them on, on, on stage, it, it's boring, it's deadly. So they live through their, uh, po through the poetry which is contained in them. So I think that's a, a very, very uh, uh, important streak in all of his writings, the poetry and the, the secret of the poetry. Uh, Beckett tried to, to build suspense, for example, to build uh, certain, he called it, balletic approaches between the characters. That means the way a sentence is written in the same way uh, the actors approach one another or come near to one another. For example, um, uh, Vladimir and Estragon, they have a, qu a quarrel on stage and uh, Estragon tries to make up for it again and he, they stand apart and he, step by step, he approaches Vladimir saying, uh, you are not, are you cross with me? Uh, will you not speak to me? Uh, give me your hand, don't be stubborn, embrace me. And then they embrace, and then he jumps back and says, you stink of garlic. See, so it's not the literal quote. But uh, um, and that happens every now and again where Beckett, and this is not symbolic, That this is very, very functional, I think, uh, where Beckett tries to, to put across in terms of movement and uh, uh, blocking uh, the inner relationship and the, the difficulties um, the two chaps have with one another. The need for one another, coming near to one another, and going away from one another again. Another example is not I, for example, uh, a monologue where the audience only sees the mouth of a woman, and uh, this woman speaks uh, text without commas, without uh, um, full stops, without anything, just an association of thoughts, line of thoughts, through 15 to, to 17 minutes. And you only see the mouth moving, 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 going on, going on, talking, 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 talking. And <clears throat> the actress who 
performed it for the first time in, in, in the States, uh, she asked Beckett, yes, but people won't understand it all. And he said, oh, I'm not interested. It's not so important that people understand every word. Important is that they get the the desperation of this mouth of this woman, which cannot stop talking, you know, which cannot be stopped. These images sometimes seem to come more from the world of dreams than from waking life, and with his use of darkness and light, silence, music and sound, Beckett tapped into this world to create an atmosphere. Stagecraft is absolutely vital to this lulling of the mind, shall we say, into a condition where it's receptive to what is coming from the deeper levels, to the deeper levels. And of course, light is an important thing here. The use of light and dark can be hallucinatory. It can set up all kinds of effects. It can um, give one, in a physical way, that sense of going down deeply, as in play. And this is part of the drawing of the audience into a mood where they are receptive to dream images, to images and words, sounds that are coming really out of a deeper level of consciousness than the one we normally operate on. We, we, it's what we experience all our lives ourselves in dream and in moments of deep feeling. And so we cannot think of that as not part of our lives. But people on the whole perhaps are a little afraid of it or wary of it and they want to push it away. And I think what one of the great things that Beckett does for us is to bring all that into our into the center, into the center of the theater, opens up for us and, and make it understandable uh, at the level of, of feeling and imagination. Beckett himself said when he turned from writing novels to writing plays that he was looking for a habitable space, a very interesting expression. And um, that habitable space changes in, in these later works and becomes a space in which we are plunged into a consciousness, very often a face, simply a head, or even just a mouth, in the dark. I mean, the whole stage becomes a piece of darkness, really. And the light is upon some organ, some part of the body, shrinking us into a little space, which is actually a very big space in the end, because although the plays are short, they're extremely intense and we go into the centre of consciousness. I mean, I don't know, quite know how Beckett did this, you know. As, uh, you, you were saying that he's highly intellectual, uh, and yet he manages to give the impression in his plays that of living symbols, of, of, of things that are not intellectual things. He manages to portray symbolically the, wor the world um, of alienation and fragmentation. Um, Yes, most, most of his communication is at a very unconscious level. It's, it's what's left unsaid or what's left unseen. It's the spaces in between words that are meaningful rather than the words themselves. Um, the silences that are really the ones that talk. My way is in the sand flowing between the shingle and the dune. 
The summer rain rains on my life, on me, my life, harrying, fleeing to its beginning, to its end. My peace is there in the receding mist, when I may cease from treading these long, shifting thresholds and live the space of a door that opens and shuts. What would I do without this world, faceless, incurious, where to be lasts but an instant, where every instant spills in the void the ignorance of having been? Without this wave, where in the end body and shadow together are engulfed, what would I do without this silence where the murmurs die? the pantings, the frenzies towards succor, towards love, without this sky that soars above its ballast dust. What would I do? What I did yesterday and the day before, peering out of my deadlight, looking for another, wandering like me, eddying far from all the living, in a convulsive space, among the voices voiceless that throng my hiddenness. I would like my love to die and the rain to be raining on the graveyard and on me walking the streets mourning her who thought she loved me. And in a state of depression like that what redeems a person is the ability to really experience their suffering to its ultimate depths, to really go with it, to confront the abysses um, of, of despair and depression. When a person can do that, it releases a healing symbol from the unconscious. Um, and of course, this, you can see this reflected in people's dreams and reflected in their lives. Um, and then the water begins to flow and the psyche is healed. And I was just thinking that that's something that doesn't happen in, in Beckett's plays. In fact, all the symbols in his plays are very dead symbols. You know, the landscape is very dead. There are no healing symbols. I'm just very interested in that because my response to Beckett is certainly limited because of that, because that redemptive moment doesn't happen. Um, and I feel in a sense that the artists that I like, for instance, the writers that I like, have managed to go through their despair, but have also managed through their despair to find their myth. And that seemed to me that Beckett was never able to do. It was that that was what was so tragic about him, that he never found meaning in, in his life. He never felt rooted, really. He wasn't able to find his myth. If this is true, does this mean that his work is really an outpouring of personal pain that doesn't have much to say to us? to people living ordinary lives, or perhaps even that what he is saying is something that might be better left unsaid? I think, I think uh, in that sense it could be very cathartic for the audience because the audience is really seeing the projection of their own deepest fears and anxieties personified, made concrete um, into these symbols on, the, on, on, on stage. Um, I was just reminded of the myth of uh, Prometheus, who's, who's, uh, who stole fire from the gods, he, he sort of stands for stealing the fire of consciousness and was tortured forever after uh, for daring to do this. 
and I think Beckett's characters aren't really able to do that. Uh, anybody, I, I think anybody who can go to the edge of experience or, or the edge of suffering is a kind of Prometheus, a kind of modern-day Prometheus, stealing fire from the gods. I think if we are honest to ourselves, and there we come to the point where spectators should be uh, you know, trained a little bit and so on uh, to look at these plays and to admit that there are their needs and their inner anxieties and their inner chaotic moments and their worries and so on mirrored, you know, and the characters. And um, I think if we are honest to ourselves, there's so much going on in ourselves that we don't dare to speak about it and we have no try a chance to speak about it and we, we have to limit ourselves, restrict ourselves. Uh, very much, and uh, I think uh, he was simply more gifted than any of us to uh, to handle it. Uh, was in, in him must have been a volcano of, of possibilities of directions. So. I, I think there is always a glimmer of light, and there is it comes in the form very often of creative achievement, uh, being able to imagine other people being able to imagine what others are enduring or experiencing and being able to perform acts of imagination out of acts of memory very often. I mean, this is a fascinating progression in the plays. For example, in, in Crabbe's last take, you could think of Crabbe, if you liked, listening to himself, his older, earlier self on tape. You could think of him as simply engaged in memory, but it more than that, he is actually, as he says himself, sifting. He's looking back, listening to his memories, and taking out from them those which now seem to the 69-year-old listening crap to have value. And as he listens, we listen too, and we must feel, if we are responding sensitively to the play, that here is a whole system. Oh, I think it's marvellous, because I'm certainly very challenged by it. I, I'm still... I still... I, I'd still like to know why does Beckett have that effect on me. I mean, uh, oh, I think that sort of challenge is wonderful. And this is this is again Beckett being Prometheus, bringing the fire of consciousness, making people think. Be again on Crochen on a Sunday morning in the haze with the bitch. Stop and listen to the bell. Be again. All that old misery. Once wasn't enough for you. Lie down across her. <laughs> gooseberries, she said. I said again I thought it was hopeless and no good going on. And she agreed without opening her eyes. I asked her to look at me. And after a few moments, after a few moments, she did. But the eyes just slits because of the glare. I bent over her to get them in the shadow and they opened. 
let me in. We drifted in among the flags and stuck. The way they went down, sighing before the stem. I lay down across her with my face in her breasts and my hand on her. We lay there without moving, but under us all moved and moved us gently up and down and from side to side. Past midnight, never knew such silence. The earth might be uninhabited. Here I end this reel, box three, spool five. years ago, when there was a chance of happiness, but I wouldn't want them back, not with a the fire in me now.